Welcome to History Club. My name is Jason. We host historically informed and civic-minded conversations here on Clubhouse on Thursday evenings. We've done lots of different topics. We've done conversations about, uh, let's see, we've done conversations about cryptocurrency and its applications to history. We've done stuff about Asian American history, like the murder of Vincent Chin. We've done stuff about Black history and women's history. We've done stuff on World War II. We've done stuff on World War I. And tonight we are going to be looking at photography and women's history and the connection between the two. It's part of a series we've been doing with Flipboard on the subject of photography and history. And I am very pleased to have my special guest here with me, Dr. Mary Panzer. So Dr. Panzer, how are you this evening? It's great to be here. Introduce yourself and tell people who you are. Okay, um, aside from having uh, being very proud of my former student, Jason Steinhauer, um, I'm a historian of photography. I was curator of photographs at the National Portrait Gallery uh, for most from 1992 to 2000. As that curator, I got to combine all of my favorite things in one spot, which is history and photography and portraiture. And if you think of the portrait gallery as a big illustrated history book, the idea is to get the best possible picture by the best possible photographer. And the story between them will tell you something important about American history. It, it sounds very simple. Um, and in some ways it is when you've got the right picture, you know it. But I got started in in this whole business, thanks to a woman photographer named Frances Benjamin Johnston, who left her entire collection of over 100,000 pictures and negatives and scrapbooks um, to the Library of Congress um, in 1952 or so. And she wrote an article in about 19, 1896 called What a Woman Can Do with a Camera. Um, so she brought together activism and uh, adventure and uh, finding a new place for women in the world and using a camera to do it. And following her career and following her to the Library of Congress opened up a whole world to me. And I hope I'll get to share some of that stuff with you guys tonight. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about that. We'll talk about all of these cool things. And yeah, one thing I like to do when I introduce a guest in History Club is I like to be candid to with people about how I know that particular guest. And sometimes it's a colleague that I worked with at the Library of Congress, or sometimes it's a scholar that I've had the chance to work with on other projects. But as you alluded to for this conversation, this is actually really exciting for me because, <clears throat> as you said, you were actually one of my professors at NYU uh, years ago. We won't say how many years ago because that would reveal something about my age, which I'm still coming to grips with. But uh, this is really cool for me because I, I took your class when I was a student at NYU and we hadn't spoken for a number of years. And then when I knew I was doing this uh, effort here with Flipboard about photography, I reached back out to you and we've been in touch. So. Uh, there's a cool uh, personal connection to all this as well, which is kind of exciting. And now it's kind of like the reverse, because like I was the student learning from you, and now I, I'm going to learn from you tonight, of course, too. But I can also hopefully teach you a little bit about Clubhouse and some of this new technology and how this all works. 
that that's the best way. That's the exactly the best way it's supposed to go. And um, I'm I'm thrilled to be able to share this through you in this whole new medium. Clubhouse is brand new. Flipboard is brand new. How else would we find out about this stuff if not from our students? So I'm I'm really really grateful to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let me take a few minutes then to talk about Flipboard um, real quick because that's uh, they're the ones making this conversation possible. And um, I guess new when we're talking with historians and about history is sort of a relative term because Flipboard actually has been around for a while. And I remember having Flipboard installed on my Android phone when I had an Android phone years ago. And uh, in the process of doing History Club and doing some various other various projects, I got reconnected with Flipboard. And we kind of came up with the idea of doing a series of conversations on Clubhouse that would combine two subjects that are very popular on Flipboard, <clears throat> photography and history. So it turns out there's actually a lot of people making what are called storyboards on Flipboard that highlight different aspects of photography or highlight different aspects of history. And how cool to do a program series where we could combine those two things together and then also create companion storyboards that show people information about what we're talking about. So we've been doing this for the past couple months. We did an event about uh, photography and the Holocaust in January. We did a, an event about photography and civil rights in February. And now we're doing one about photography and women's history in March. And with Dr. Panzer's help, I actually put together a Flipboard storyboard that will show you some of the images that we're going to talk about tonight and some of these photographers we're going to talk about tonight, including Francis Benjamin Johnson. So um, right above my head, there's going to be a rotating series of links, including the Flipboard storyboards. Uh, right now, I've got a little bit about this partnership that we've been doing with Flipboard, but I encourage you to check out Flipboard and think about using it for all kinds of interesting creative projects. If you want to showcase photography, if you want to showcase history, if you want to showcase journalism. I know that they've also, uh, Flipboard also has been recently uh, focusing on the Ukraine conflict and they've been putting up links to stories and curating storyboards that deal with the issues going on overseas. So it's a, it's a cool platform to collate and collect material and we're really appreciative to them for making this event possible. So uh, I'm gonna flip out uh, one of these links here and put in the storyboard. Uh, and while I do that, maybe we can start, Dr. Panzer, by just kind of setting the stage a little bit. I mean, when you and I talked about this event last week, I recall that we said maybe we take just a minute or two at the outset to kind of lay some groundwork for people and just maybe think about photography itself as a medium. And um, I love the phrase that you've used of, of thinking about photography as being quote unquote, a naturally subversive medium and how that subversive quality just fits with this overall story of women's history and women's rights and women photographers. So maybe while I queue up some links, um, you could talk a little bit about that idea of photography as a subversive medium and why that's particularly important when it comes to this subject tonight. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy uh, to, to start there. Thing about photography, um, uh, the medium itself was introduced to the larger public in 1839. And, um, 
And at the very turn of the 20th century, going from the 19th to the 20th century, it was mature enough that the technology was settled, not so experimental. People, up, middle class people could afford to buy cameras and uh, could afford, even if sometimes afford to develop their own glass plates and then film and create their own pictures. And um, it was very quickly used as an art form because, and embraced by women, because unlike going to learn painting or sculpture or printmaking that had a very long tradition and a long um, apprenticeship, photography was brand new and anyone could enter it and anyone could master it and anyone could figure out a way to make a, a living, which is what uh, Francis Benjamin Johnston said, what a woman can do with a camera. It made it interesting to me because there were so many women workers who were succeeding um, very from the very beginning of the 20th century. And a lot of what they did had to do with uh, portraiture because that relied on women's natural empathy, you know, if you want to talk about that. But also, you could take your camera to somebody's home, you didn't need a whole big studio to set up. Uh, and the kind of intimacy of being in someone's own environment ends up creating a, an opportunity to make some really good pictures. Then you had women going to the homes of women, specializing in portraits of women or women and children. And on one hand, you could say this is, oh, this is so trite, you know, women and babies. And But at the same time, you're taking a person and giving her an opportunity to enter a new environment and show the world what she sees, right? So the notion that there's a, a human being behind the camera who's influencing how the picture gets made, that it's not just a machine, that concept in sometimes uh, in the history of photography seems like a very difficult one. But I imagine all of these women with their cameras starting out on as a business person or starting out to um, portray their friends always knew that when they had a camera in their hands, they were going to be able to see something new and make a record and share that vision with other people. So having women with this brand new modern form of picture making, you put it together and a lot of exciting things can happen. How's that? Is that a good start? Yeah, I think that's a good start. I like it. Um, and I think um, we've mentioned her a couple times now, so maybe this is a good segue into Frances Benjamin Johnson, who was the woman who with her exciting work got you first interested in this field and also she's one of the first american women to make a career as a photographer she's born during the civil war if i'm not mistaken and kind of uh, comes to prominence in the late 19th century so i think it's interesting just on a very basic level to recognize that in the 1890s there's this successful woman in washington dc who has her own photo studio and is taking uh, pictures of uh, presidents and so uh, uh military leaders uh in the united states as well as traveling around the country documenting various aspects of american life 
not something we maybe associate with the late 19th century in the United States. Um, so maybe you can about her, and we've got some links to her work on our Flipboard storyboard. So as you're talking, I can uh, put up some of the essays that she wrote as, as well as some of the pictures that she took. Right. Well, yeah, she, um, she, she was a remarkable person. Not everybody could, can really um, operate with the same kind of freedom and boldness that she did. Uh, she got her start at the Smithsonian. She was friendly with the man who was helping the Smithsonian create a photographic collection. She was in London and helped buy things for the for the Smithsonian. She put together a group of uh, photographs by other women in America to exhibit at the uh, uh, World's Exposition in Paris in 1900. And Another thing that she was able to do was um, to become the white first White House official White House photographer for Teddy Roosevelt that she started when she became uh, photographed Alice um, Roosevelt Long, who became Alice Roosevelt Longworth, um, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, rambunctious daughter and a fixture in Washington society, but. Frances became a, a journalist for George Grantham Bain, who ran one of the very first uh, syndicates like AP or UPI for distributing photographs around the world, which meant that her pictures were distributed very, very widely. The um, Probably her most famous um, group of pictures was taken at the Hampton Institute uh, which is in Hampton, Virginia, which was established to help educate uh, former slaves and the children of former slaves. And Hampton University still exists today as one of the, probably one of the first historically black colleges. Um, her pictures of this place can, can be found um, online and they were republished as a book. They're very old fashioned looking, they're very formal, they're very posed, but at the same time, they're very complete. And the people in them, these African-American students are presented with a dignity and respect, which in 1900 or so, when these pictures were made, um, wasn't necessarily a given. She was asked to make these pictures because the Hampton Institute wanted to make a whole documentary project about its classes and its success and its students and its modern facilities. And so she was the person who was asked to, to create this document. Um, and um, she, she, she like many people um, as as she kind of aged out of the uh, photojournalism uh, profession um, after World War one she moved into photographing gardens and houses for magazines and she ended up settling in New Orleans in 1952 and where she died in 1952 when the Hampton Institute Hampton Institute pictures were recovered um, in the 
early 60s, nobody knew about them. They didn't know who she was. They couldn't imagine how they'd been made. Um, and so in this way, her, her work becomes a very important resource for us. I mean, the good thing about the photograph, any photograph, is it records exactly what was happening when the picture was being made. So it's it's a it can be seen as a window into history. You have to remember that somebody's organizing that window for you. So it's what they think that should be seen. And it's not purely transparent, but um, through the survival of this album that got put before the Museum of Modern Art, suddenly this person, her collection, her accomplishments came into blossomed once again. It was, um, uh, so you have to think about these documents as existing in time. You know, they don't just freeze and become um, historical and dusty, that they continue to have significance that changes depending on who's looking at the pictures. And, and so her pictures, many of which are on the website of the Library of Congress, um, are, and they look beautiful on the web, by the way. They just are sparkling and clear and interesting and you can blow them up and you can look at them. So I really think another great asset of photography and history has been um, the digital age and the screen that we get to look at and see these things. I don't think they've ever looked so good, really. Hmm. Well, uh, let's, let's hope that we all look better with age because of technology. <laughs> Um, but uh, the uh, the Hampton album, which you're referring to, which she took these pictures, <clears throat> is uh, you can actually look at it on the web. Smithsonian actually has it in their online catalog. And I put a link up above our heads if people want to flip through it. I'm also flipping through it right now on my desktop. And yeah, these pictures are, you know, they really are remarkable just to see this uh <clears throat> this institute in a snapshot of what it looked like at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and to and to also imagine how these photographs would have been presented at the time that they were created. It says here on the Smithsonian website that they were featured at that Paris exposition exposition in 1900. So this, you know, this school institute of formerly enslaved persons and their descendants educating themselves, learning new skills, posing for these photographs, and then having that displayed overseas in Paris at this exhibition at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, it just sets, sets the brain's imagination afire, I feel like, of all the ways, that the, all the meaning that these photographs had at the time they were created, as well as the meaning that they have, you know, in perpetuity. Well, I think the other thing that, uh, the other plug we should really make too is is for uh, an institution that I know you like and I like both, which is the Library of Congress, because not only Francis's collection but the entire collection of the Farm Security Administration, which we'll talk about um, pretty soon, um, and they had been collecting photographs since there were photographs were made. Much of their collection came in the form of uh, copyright deposits, and then. Um, they acquired, they've acquired whole collections of photojournalism like George Grantham Baines. They've um, acquired archives of individual photographers um, like uh, Tony Purcell, who is a fashion photographer in the 
40s and 50s and 60s. So everything that that the library collects or quite a lot of it is available to you. And um, so anybody, many of the names we're going to mention, you can find them there. Uh, and I really can't think I can't speak highly enough of the way the library with its democratic access to information and um, and images and new ideas is such an extraordinary resource for us. Uh, but that's my plug. Anyway. Well, Jason. listen, I worked at the Library of Congress, as you know, so I will take every excuse to plug the Library of Congress, which is an amazing place. And in fact, little known trivia, the very first history club we ever held in August of 2020, we talked about the Library of Congress. It was titled Secrets from the Library of Congress. And I spent two and a half hours talking about all the stuff hidden inside the library that no one knows about. So it was great. Um, that got history club off and running to where it is today. Um, but let's spin it forward a little bit because when we talked over the phone, we had talked about sort of dividing this very big topic into roughly three chronological segments in the late 19th century, moving into the 21st century, and then the 21st century. And we kind of figured that each would take about 20 minutes. So we're about 20 minutes into our conversation. So we've kind of set the groundwork, the late 19th, early 20th century. There were women photographers taking portraits, doing photojournalism, documenting things like the Hampton Institute. But of course, the 20th century is really where uh, at least from my limited knowledge of the history of photography, it really begins to flourish. And in particular, you noted that the 20th century is this time of the, the big photo picture magazines, the look magazines, the life magazines, photographs that we're probably very familiar with from seeing them in our textbooks growing up or seeing them on calendars and gift shops around the world. Uh, so how does photography begin to change as we get into the 20th century? and also the distribution and dissemination of photographs around the world change. Well, what we do is we, we take, take a minute to talk about um, 1890 when the halftone process was um, perfected and made, which made it possible to print photographs directly um, onto, onto paper. Uh, before that, you couldn't really print a photograph alongside type. You had to translate it by copying it or drawing, making a drawing of it. Um, with the halftone, you could print it on paper and it could go everywhere. And that starts in the 1890s. And that's part of why Frances could, could publish all her, her work about women and gardens and houses. And um, because these magazines were able to reproduce pictures. Uh, if you look at a magazine fr from any era, um, especially in the 20th century, but say from about 1935 on, they're like whole big collections of photography, really. There's the photography on the cover, there's the photography of the that the ads are made of, there's the photography that the picture stories are made of, there's photography that illustrates fiction. There's photography that, you know, promises, sells all kinds of, um, promises all kinds of things to you. Um, and 
really the big picture magazines get started uh, in the middle of the 19, in America in the middle of the 1930s. In Europe, especially France and Germany, they start earlier. Earlier, the technology begins there. And then in the early 30s, as many people had to escape fascism, they would come to the United States. They brought with them their training and their technology uh, and their sophisticated design things. So this, the story goes you know, across the ocean and some of the very earliest people participating in Life magazine, which started in 1930, fall of 1936, and Look starts in the winter of 1937, you know, very close together. They're relying on, on European um, sources, but everybody catches on pretty quickly. The, the, along with the illustrated magazines, you have this new idea of a picture story, not just one picture of a fire or a tank or, or um, somebody shaking somebody's hand, but pictures making essays altogether. And that form took a while to develop. It did. What we have here in the United States, something that's going on very exciting, starting uh, in the middle of the 1930s, in the middle of the 1930s and going to the early 1940s is uh, under the New Deal, which was FDR, President Roosevelt, trying to um, lift the whole country out of depression. Inside the Department of Agriculture, an economist named Rex Tugwell decided to hire one of his graduate students from Columbia University to organize a team of photographers to document what was going on in the country. And the person who really set the style for this work of combining pictures and text and telling a story it was Dorothea Lang. Uh, just to give you some idea, her, her dates are 1895 to 1965. Um, and her, her work was all about making visible conditions of historical conditions, economic conditions, family conditions, making visible things that weren't visible. Now you have to realize there was no television, right? There were movies and newsreels and radio, but there was no large source of photographic images aside from these magazines. And so Roy Stryker, who hired Dorothea Lang and Walker Evans and uh, Ben Sean and Marion Post Walcott and uh, almost, uh, almost two dozen altogether, uh, photographers was always trying to make pictures that were going to get run in these magazines around the country or run in, you know, the Sunday magazine illustrated section. So they're, so even though the government is doing documentation and the and Life magazine is looking for kind of sensational or entertaining stories, um, they're both addressing the same audience in the same way. They 
they want to get on these pages and the pages come to your house and you open them up and they and they take you places that there's no other pictures to take you there but and the idea but a woman like Dorothea Lang who is intensely curious and intensely empathic ha getting this assignment would go off and find things and wait for people and cultivate relationships in a way that um, an in and out kind of photojournalist doesn't have an opportunity to do. She also worked with her husband, Paul Taylor, who is an economist. And a lot of people uh, often gave Paul Taylor a lot of credit while Paul Taylor gave Dorothea Lang a lot of credit for the kind of investigation she did, the kind of recording of, of voices and, and not with a tape recorder, but writing it down. Um, and they did a book together called the American Exodus talking about how a whole, you know, millions of people were leaving their farms in the South and the Midwest to go to California and work as migrant workers. Um, and that whole exodus across the country was a phenomenon of the uh, late 30s and early 40s that, um, that she that she sh showed in pictures. Um, but she was also very important in terms of using this new tool in a new way. You know, here's a woman with a camera and she's out to show something that people can't see or experience in any other way, uh, making making the world visible, and in the same way that we're making this world of that's that's terribly sad and also um, poor and um, scrabbling along, she was able to find a way to show these people not as victims but as dignified respected, whole human beings who are in a terrible situation where there's no sense of blaming the victim that they only got there because they deserved it. She takes, all the pictures she takes are of people who, who deserve a wonderful life and as wonderful life as they possibly can live. And you do see people struggling and succeeding um, and she's not afraid to show people succeeding in circumstances that are still terrible. Her bravery and her insistence on the, the power of these pictures is, um, is really uh, remarkable and very inspiring. Yeah, Dorothea Lang, I think, is a name that probably people are familiar with. I mean, again, her pictures have become so iconic, it's, it's almost like you know the the photograph of the dust bowl woman that uh that is so famous and seen around the world people probably don't even the remember migrant where they mother, first saw it. the migrant mother yeah, yeah yeah migrant mother excuse me um but it's interesting to learn more about her as a person because i think on some level like when these photographs become so iconic you have a association with the image but you don't actually know much about the person behind the camera who took the photograph you know um and I feel like that part of the story oftentimes gets elided or just disappears over time as the image gets reproduced over and over again. I mean, Lang has certainly 
received public acclaim for her work, but um, I mean, in talking with you and putting together the Flipboard storyboard for this event, I mean, there were other photo photographers, women photographers from this time period that you mentioned and you cited that I was not familiar with and that I've enjoyed learning about. So in, in this same spirit of telling us more about the person behind the camera, maybe there are a couple others that we can talk about. Maybe someone like Marjorie Collins, for example, who you introduced me to who I wasn't familiar with, or um, maybe even someone like Marion Post Wolcott, who again, I was not so familiar with, but um, you know, the roles of some of these other maybe lesser known women photographers who were also going across the country in the 30s and 40s and documenting life and the way it was impacting ordinary people. Oh, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Marion, Marion Post Walcott's really one of my favorites. Um, and I hadn't known that much about her, but I was looking, but there's a lot of her work in the New York Public Library collection and also all of the work that she did for the FSA is on the Library of Congress site. And Marion Post Walcott um, was educated in, in Europe um, in, the, in, the, in the 20s and early 30s, and she came back to America. But she had learned photography uh, in, in Austria. Uh, it was just, but as, as a, as a the environment wasn't good and she left and she became a photographer at the Philadelphia Inquirer um, where they just made her study girls, girls, like girls society stuff. That's what they wanted her to photograph. And somebody saw her work and said, oh, go talk to Roy Stryker. And he hired her on the spot. She's very pretty. And I think that that certainly helped helped her career. There's no no shame in that. But she also was extremely, again, she was slightly bohemian and um, very curious and open-minded. And it turns out that among the photographers who were documenting America, she, she was one who took um, the most, she was one of the FSA photographers who photographed African-American life. Uh, Dorothea Lang also did that, but Marion Post Walcott did it a lot. And she also made extended stories. So she wasn't just looking for one picture or three or four pictures. She would cover a story very extensively. Um, if, if there was a church picnic um, in a town in the middle of North Carolina, you could see all the people at the picnic, the whole setting, the children, the you know, the food, the, it's very, very, these very, very complete pictures, but you couldn't encompass her work in one picture the way the migrant mother picture served to represent Dorothea Lang. So Marion Post Walcott requires, takes a little um, time <laughs> to, to look at because you won't, you won't see one thing at a time. Marjorie Collins has this really great spirit and I'm, her work always makes me happy, which is kind of a goofy thing to say, but she's really, um, she's, she's very creative and she's also very modest. You know, she, she's not looking for these enormous stories. She's looking to look, she's looking at everyday life. Um, 
and her her determination to find everyday life interesting and to make you interested in it too is 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 kind of exhilarating i would i would say um another one of the fsa photographers whose work shows up is esther bubbly who came on um very at the late end of the project but one project she did for the fsa was to ride a greyhound bus across the country um so she's she gets both both the landscape and also the whole notion of people and travel and who's on the road and what they look like and how it feels and that that whole story in and of itself could be a movie um but also um jason you should tell everybody that the um library of congress does have this great kind of omnibus site about women photojournalists that you could that would give you a whole list of these people and you could spend you know as much time as you like um looking at their pictures um following that list and also each one of them is represented by um a, a concise and informative essay about their lives and and um how they came to make the work that they did um it's pretty well, inspiring that is a yeah, that's a good segue to remind people, uh, for people who just joined or people who've been here for a while, that um, all of these photographers that Dr. Panzer is mentioning, um, ones that you may be familiar with, ones that you might be learning about for the first time, they are linked on this Flipboard storyboard that is right above our heads in this mm -hmm. pin linked area. So um, definitely click on that as we're talking because you can, as Mary just said, you can then go out and see all these different web pages that have been created that showcase the work of Dorothea Lang, Marion Post Wolcott, Esther Bubbly, Marjorie Collins, Tony Frizzell. We have links to all of them on our Flipboard storyboard. So this is a wonderful use case for Flipboard and why it's such a cool collaboration that we've been doing with them because we can talk about it here on an audio app, but then we can pin out links to a storyboard that has all of these pictures that you can look at, as well as links to pages from the Library of Congress and Smithsonian Museum of Modern Art that talk about these women and the work that they did, the lives that they lived, the stories that they told. So definitely check out the link, check out Flipboard in general. If you're interested in doing something like this in your own life, let's say you're uh, interested in cooking and you wanna to put together a Flipboard of different, different recipes, you could do that if you wanted to do something about American history, European history, or black history, or Asian American history, and you want to use a Flipboard for that, like there's a lot of use cases for Flipboard. Um, but this is a cool use case right here to showcase some of these women photographers um, and their their work. Um, I'm curious, um, Mary, how this all changes with the advent of television. You talked about how, you know, there wasn't TV at that time, there, there wasn't as many ways to see these images. And so these magazines like Look and like Life had great power in the American cultural landscape before the Second World War and during the Second World War. Um, once television comes around, how does that change the landscape for these photography magazines and these photography projects and these women photographers? Do they have the same 
ability to get work and distribute their images? Or does what they do have to change as the technology and the media change? It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful um, question, Jason. And it's also, you know, a difficult question. The real key to the magazines is advertising. Advertising is what makes the magazines possible. So where I used to try to just teach the editorial stories, and I would bring my old magazines to class, and maybe I did this, Jason, when you were in class, I would show them to everyone, and all the students went right to the ads. These colorful, funny, unpredictable, you know, um, enticing, all the things the ads were supposed to do, they did on paper. And many of them had photographs in them, of course. And it was only my students who taught me how important advertising was to the whole enterprise. This was not a secret to the magazine people who after World War II, you know, throughout the 50s, were watching, watching as television began to suck away all their ads all their advertising revenue and it just it went and went and went and so that by 1972 both look and life magazine were gone um and however magazines that had a strong focus or appeal like photo magazines where plenty of camera advertisers and film advertisers would find their audience they continued very happily um, well into the, the 80s and even early 90s. It wasn't until the digital revolution that those things have, have faded. But uh, fashion magazines were perfectly happy. They had advertising from cosmetics and clothing and stores and all kinds of advertisers were very happy to reach their audience in the form of a magazine. So somebody like Tony Fursell, whose whole collection um, is at the Library of Congress, and her dates are 1907 to 1988. Tony Fursell, um, who was also based in, in, in Washington for uh, part of her career, um, made a a wonderful career for herself, photographing people outside, doing sports. And then also she did a whole series of ads for Garfinkel's, which was a very fancy department store in Washington, DC with gorgeous models dressed in beautiful clothes. Uh, and in the background is the Jefferson Monument or the Washington Monument or you know, the cherry blossoms or the Capitol building. Um, so she took advantage of her, of her location to give her ads the kind of um, classy appeal that uh, Garfinkel's, that Garfinkel's wanted. Um, I don't think that the women photographers were, were impacted any more or less than everybody else looking for markets um, to sell their work. Um, but it, it, did change, it did change the landscape a, a great deal. Um, and, uh, and also I think that the advertising on paper kind of had a longer, a slightly longer life than the editorial picture stories um, 
so that you could continue in a in a commercial career um, more successfully than in doing just journalism. Now we don't hold that against anybody, but for a long time, uh, a serious photographer used black and white and only made pictures for the thrill of making pictures, and then photojournalists were out there, you know, feeding the feeding the journalism profession or commercial photographers who were doing advertising or fashion um, were in a different class. Now we're able to see them all together and appreciate the skill and the creativity um, and, and the liveliness of, of anybody who's using a camera. Another form that took off um, as the magazines were waning were photo books, picture books. And that whole medium has remained very alive and is enjoying a real renaissance now um, uh, in many ways. And so that it's not just pictures to hang on the wall or pictures on the page of a magazine, but pictures in a book that becomes another form of disseminating um, information and uh, picture, you know, in pictures and books by women photographers become something that's available and are printed and are valued. Um, so that's a whole other kind of art form that comes to life um, as Life magazine and those kinds of picture magazines are, are fade. It seems to me too, and again, this is just a, an amateur perspective here, uh, but it seems to me too that the um, the late 20th century, the mid to late 20th century really starts to, um, how do I say this, but sort of like the lionization of the photojournalist starts to really come into being, uh, into, this, into the space where it is today, where being a photojournalist has this sort of cachet and this clout attached to it and um it's interesting when we were when you and i were talking you 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 mentioned and alluded to the fact that the there was a little bit of a machismo stereotype associated with the photojournalist it being sort of a, a a profession associated with with men maybe incorrectly um and how women photojournalists have had to fight against that stereotype uh for decades in the 20th century and now into the 21st century but I'm wondering if you can give that a little bit more specificity and a little bit more depth than I'm able to articulate in terms of how the, the role of the photojournalist evolves with the technology and with the changing media and particularly the woman photojournalist, that role and what stereotypes or myths women photojournalists have to fight against in order to be taken in the same seriousness as their male counterparts. I'm glad you're asking that. Um, uh, there are, these, these myths are very uh, durable and they're very strong so that one of the first people who got his reputation as a swashbuckling, you know, daredevil uh, journalist was a man named Robert Kappa, 
um, who ended up dying in Vietnam in 1954, reporting on the French war there. It took us much longer to learn about who his very first um, photography partner was, a woman named Gerda Taro, who lived from 1910 to 1937. She died in Spain, where she and Kappa were both um, sending pictures of the Spanish Civil War back to Paris, uh, where they were picked up by um, by journalists, by magazines and, and newspapers. But Gerda Taro's was lost to us for a very long time. Um, really not until about the year 2000 did we begin to know her name. Uh, there's a, and that also represents kind of the growing recognition that women on the battlefield or women in the, in the midst of, of difficult circumstances were going to be completely successful. Um, one of those people is a woman named Susan Mizellis, um, who made her, um, most made her sort of debut in the, in the public eye, although she'd been shooting for a long time, shooting photographs, um, in El Salvador and then in Nicaragua. Uh, she went down to El Salvador having heard that there was something to a story to be told. She had a couple of cameras and a lot of film and not much Spanish. And her work ended up on the cover of the New York Times Magazine, introducing this whole um, uh, revolt of, of the Sandinistas uh, against the dictator. It was, it was Susan's pictures. Um, and she had she had kind of embedded herself with a whole um, uh, set of 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 contras, uh, fighters fighting the the tyranny of the government. Um, she uh, and and she's gone on with a career um, in showing the underside and the intimate side of these political struggles. It's, it's um, another really inspiring, inspiring thing. But um, I don't, I do know, for example, another journalist named Nina Berman, who, uh, when everybody was going to Iraq, um, was was home uh, here in the United States. Uh, she knew she couldn't go to Iraq for various reasons. But what she could do was cover what happened to the soldiers when, when they came home. So this was a whole kind of hidden side of warfare that is part of the story, but hadn't been, you know, part of the glamorous uh, parachute in or helicopter in and find some bloody scene and take the picture and win a Pulitzer Prize, etc. Nina ended up telling stories of called it was called purple hearts and it was about what happened to people when they came back from iraq with very serious um injuries and that really changed i think um her work helped change the perception of of war here in this country um but again there's uh somebody whose work you can see in the new york times right now lindsay adario who's um uh in ukraine
and um, taking very, uh, very intimate pictures of, of the refugees and the women and children. But that, as we've come to learn, is a central part of the story of war. So I think that there's a way in which um, these women and their determination to show us what's going on on the ground, what everyday life looks like, what, you know, what war looks like when you're living through it. Um, they've, I think they've greatly enlarged uh, our associations and kind of given the lie to this, um, to the macho myth of the, the man who can, um, you know, parachute in and take the great picture and, and uh, leave all kind of inconvenient life um, aside. Uh, life is very inconvenient. And I think that we, we owe these, these, uh, this new generation of photographers a great deal by, again, showing us things that would otherwise be invisible and showing us that ordinary life is important. Um, anyway, uh, I guess how, where, where should we go from here, Jason? Well, I think that was a good, that's kind of a good, we've, amazingly enough, we've covered about 120 years of history in just under an hour, so that's great. So I think what we should do is we should get people thinking about any questions that they might want to ask, or if there's any particular photographer that you've mentioned that people might want to know more about, if there's a particular aspect to this very large story that people want to dig into a little bit more. We can give people a minute or two to think about if they have any questions. People may not have questions. Last month when we did our session on uh, photography and civil rights, we actually didn't have any questions from the audience, which is fine. Uh, we, people were clicking on the link and they were thinking about things. And I heard some people from people after the fact that you know they were have had their gears turning a little bit. So, uh, but we can give people a chance to think about if there's any questions. If anyone wants to raise their hand and come up, but uh, in the meantime, why don't we kind of think about at least bringing this part of our conversation to a conclusion before we get to any Q and A? And I want to maybe end um, in the last few minutes, uh, Mary, with you, maybe thinking a little bit um, out loud with me also about not just um, women as a sort of a broad category of photographers and photojournalists, but then applying some of the intersectionality to this question. So uh, black women photographers, Asian American women photographers, Latinx women photographers, um, you know, how, how has even within um, the broad field of women's photography have some of these other uh, minor, minority groups or marginalized groups, uh, how have they sort of made space for their stories or laid claim to their pictures having more public view? Where have there been ways where their work has been maybe overlooked or overshadowed by the mainstream? And how is that changing now in the 21st century? Anything you can tell us uh, on that perspective, I think would also be useful in sort of filling out the story with some more three dimensions. There's what it's like anything else. Once you start looking, you start to find things. Um, there's a, a woman named um, 
Ming Smith, who was part of a of a huge collective um, called the Kamoinge Workshop that got started in the 60s. Um, and I knew about her work uh, without knowing she was a woman. <laughs> How about that? It's, it's kind of crazy, but I, I didn't. And then, and then as the Kamoinge Workshop has gotten um, uh, better known recently, um, her work has also come to the, come to the fore. I, uh, Jean Mus Mudasami Ash is another great woman photojournalist who happens to be black. Um, and there, and really in the, in the wake of all of the attention to Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, um, sort of, you, you figure that's like a pebble in a pond, out it, out it spreads and it brings to us so many new workers or new names or new to some of us, obviously, and not, not so new to other people. Uh, and I think that the web has been a really great educational tool for this um, because it's easy to share and kind of publish um, pictures, what used to be expensive, you know, what the Life magazine needed to find <clears throat> um, advertisers to support can be done much less expensively on the web and travel much, much, much further. Uh, so my, my immediate recall of black women photographers is, is embarrassingly slim right at this minute. Um, but the other thing is, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a woman, <laughs> you know, there's Chester Higgins at the New York times. There's, um, uh, there's Charles Moore, who was one of the great, um, um, civil rights photographers. Uh, so I, I don't know. I somehow intersectionality seems to, um, flatten it out for everybody, but, uh, there, and there are so many young photographers now also who are showing up, um, in galleries or teaching it, uh, Deanna Lawson, is a, is a woman um, who actually was born in Rochester, New York, which is where I live some of the time. And she's been the subject of, of some in, um, great exhibitions recently at the Guggenheim. And I think there's another one coming up. Um, she also does portraits of, from people in the African-American community. She does them in color. She makes these pictures really large. They're like monumental. And she photographs people in their own homes, in their own environment. So it's kind of back to 1900 in a way. But um, her ability to create these immensely interesting um, pictures that are not sensational you know, it's a part of life that many, much of white America would never see. Um, and yet there's nothing exotic about any of it. It's very matter of fact. And it's very, she's very accepting of her, of her subjects. And that 
attitude makes it possible for a stranger, you know, a white old lady stranger like me to find myself being able to enter this space, to accept what's going on, to be able to celebrate people um, easily and joyfully. And that's really her, um, that's her contribution uh, among many. Um, yeah, well, that's great. And we do actually have on the Flipboard storyboard that's linked above my head, I do actually have a few links to some uh, articles and, and publications that have come out recently that feature black women photographers, that feature Latin American photographers. So there's some good resources out there that will point people towards some of these uh, current and emerging photographers, uh, women photographers, women photographers of color who are doing interesting work that people just may not be aware of. And uh, I know I certainly wasn't uh, aware of many of them uh, myself. I think that's sort of the blessing and the curse of the internet. And I write about this in my book, as you know, that it's like, yeah, the internet has all this potential to bring things to our attention, but we still have to somehow or other encounter it in our news feeds. And the process by which that happens is not always neutral and is controlled by a lot of different factors. So sometimes it takes a conversation like this or a flipboard storyboard to bring some of these works to people's attention, because even though it is on the Internet and can be distributed widely, doesn't mean it's going to find a wide audience. There's still um, a lot that has to happen in order to make that possible. Um, and so a plug to read my book, which will explain to you how and why these things happen as they do. Um, let me, since it is the top of the hour and we've been talking for a while, let me just quickly just kind of reset the room, which we do here on Clubhouse and uh, remind people who have been here for a while or are just coming in that this is History Club. We meet on Thursday nights to think about history and how it affects the, the past, present and the future. Uh, we have historically informed and civic minded conversations about a wide range of topics. We used to do this every week. Uh, but uh, for a variety, variety of reasons, like me writing a book and also promoting that book, and then also just general things in life, had to kind of scale it back to about once per month now. But the last few months, we've actually been sponsored by Flipboard and had this amazing collaboration where we've been looking at this intersection between photography and history. And we talk about it here in History Club on Clubhouse, and then we also create a companion storyboard where people can go to learn more, to look at photographs, to click on links and learn about photographs, photographers, histories that they may not have been aware of. So up above our heads here is that Flipboard storyboard link. I encourage you to check it out. There's a lot of great stuff on there that uh, Dr. Panzer has helped me curate. Uh, links to a lot of different photographers who I wasn't familiar with, a lot of women photographers that I uh, didn't know much about. And so I really do think you'll learn something uh, by clicking on the link. And Flipboard is just a great resource in general to think about uh, if you want to curate collections on any number of different topics, whether it be photography or cooking or history or uh, even, you know, what's going on now with the uh, war in Ukraine. So um, I think, you know, it is a little bit late here on the East Coast. It's 11 o'clock. I know, you know, I have some things I need to do tomorrow. Mary, I know you have things you have to do tomorrow. Uh, so why don't we kind of bring this conversation to a close? It is being recorded so we can distribute it through the History Club newsletter and, and share it with people who may have missed it or who want to go back and learn more about some of the photographers that you mentioned. But um, let me just 
kind of wind us down by spinning this forward a little bit because uh, you mentioned this a little bit. You alluded to it when you talked about social media and you and I also talked about this separately uh, when it comes to platforms like Instagram. But um, I mean, photography today is everywhere. I mean, everything on our screens, Facebook feeds, Instagram feeds, you know, all the magazines, online magazines, print magazines, newsstands, photojournalism. I mean, it just seems like photography is ever present and omnipresent in our lives. And everyone now can be a photographer just by holding up their cell phone and pressing a quick button and filtering it through any number of different filters that they get on their phone. Uh, as someone who studies the history of photography and is a curator of photography, I just wonder where you see photography going next, if you have a a vision or a prediction that you want to share. I mean, with photography, the powerful photographs and, and, and computers that are in our hands at all times now, what is this doing for photography? What is this doing for younger people who might be interested in photography? Uh, is this, generally speaking, a good thing for photography, this democratizing <laughs> effect? I don't, I'm just wondering if you have any sort of thoughts that you want to leave us with as we think about the future as we we've talked a lot about the past tonight maybe mm. we can spin it forward right well that's yeah um first of all i want to call everyone's attention to enfoco.org e-n-f-o-c-o.org which is um a latinx organization that's all about photography and i just found it by you know typing in Latinx photo organization and up it comes. So, uh, but, and I've, I've been thinking I would have had it ready. So I'm going to add it to the, to the um, bibliography that Jason's been putting together. I think that um, uh, it's increasingly easy to make a good picture, right? I mean, the phones are amazing and what they're able to make us, allow us, enable us to do. Um, and that we're kind of drowning in all of these pictures. So it becomes increasingly important to understand what to ask for, what to look for, and also how to organize your, your thoughts, your questions, your collections, right? so that all of this is out there but if you don't know to ask for Dorothea Lang you'll never get to where um you'd be able to see her work except for the one famous picture and you know and she took hundreds and hundreds of pictures and they're and they're all as good as that one you know and that's what really kills me is how in some ways the uh perpetuation of of very few pictures because it's so hard to go look and find other ones. It seems that we, the more we make, the fewer we know. So I think really um, what I'd like to see happen is for people to learn how to ask questions and ask questions of visual material and learn how to look for visual material. It's a kind of literacy, just like learning to read um, imagine the library full of books and all the books full of pages and all the pages full of words and you say there's too many words, but we've learned to 
identify authors, identify subjects, learn how to find all that stuff, or we used to when we went to the library instead of getting everything online. So now I think that the photographs are um, forcing us to learn a new kind of literacy. Um, and uh, it, it isn't necessarily instinctive, you know, you have to learn it. I don't know how, I don't know the best way to make that happen, but I, I do think that just having a conversation like Jason and I have had and having some questions and sitting there with your computer and figure, finding out what happens when you start to ask questions will go a long way um, to enlarging our ability to find and look at things and, and not just drown in all of this sea of, of digits. How's that? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, again, I, if you read my book, I, <laughs> I agree 100%. I think this is a moment where we need to be really instilling some media literacy and historical literacy in information consumers of online content, exactly because you know, the, the, the internet and the web and the social web are not neutral platforms. They do have algorithms and other social and um, computational factors that privilege certain types of information and, and bury other types of information. If you're not able to understand what's going on behind the scenes that surfaces, you know, the one or two iconic photographs to your eyes, but prevents you from ever seeing the larger corpus or the larger picture, uh, then you're you're not going to have a real true and deep understanding um, of the past, the present, or the future, as far as I'm concerned. So I, I agree with you 100%. I think um, just because we have more of something doesn't necessarily mean that we have more understanding or that we have a greater depth of knowledge about it. And uh, I think that's definitely can be applied to photography the history of photography and to and to women photographers just just because we know a few women photographers exist doesn't mean we really know the whole story of women's photography and women's photographic history and so having conversations like this and having flipboard storyboards those help us learn more than what we would ordinarily just find on our own so i think that's a great place to end the conversation uh, as a final plug, I've put above my head a sign up for the History Club newsletter. It's in that newsletter that we announce events like this, that we promote the storyboards that we're creating through this partnership with Flipboard. It's where we uh, share commentary about uh, global events from a historical perspective. It's where we post podcast conversations such as this one, which this, this conversation was recorded. And so we will uh, post the replay in our Substack newsletter. So please do sign up for the newsletter if you want to find out about more information like this, uh, more events like this, or if you want to get updates when podcasts are released and other cool things come down the pike. Um, but in the meantime, um, Dr. Panzer, let me just thank you for giving up your time on a Thursday evening on the East Coast here to be with us in History Club and have this conversation. Um, and for those of you who may have come in late and uh, didn't get the spiel at the beginning, uh, I was actually a student of Mary's uh, many years ago at NYU. Uh, her class on history of photography was one of the best classes I took in graduate school, and I'm not exaggerating. I 
remembered that class long after I took it. I had all the books from that class uh, long after I took it until I unfortunately had to get rid of my books because of a mold disaster in my apartment years ago. Um, but she was a great professor. I learned a lot from her. And uh, when I found out that I was going to get to do these types of events with Flipboard, she was literally the first person I reached out to. So it means a lot that you took time out of your schedule to come into my little internet classroom and do this with us. Well, I, I, um, you've always been fun to talk to and, and that continues to be so. And I'm very grateful to have been able to share this hour with, with you and the History Club. It's been really fun. I, I hope people will go and look at lots and lots of pictures online now and start asking questions. It's very exciting to join this century and in this, in this <laughs> medium. I'm, I'm thrilled. Good. Well, we'll have you back sometime. But in the meantime, we'll call it a, a night because it is 1115 here on the East Coast. And um, we will pick the conversation back up in the newsletter. So keep a lookout for this uh, recording and for other future events. And until then, everyone uh, be safe, be warm, and go look at some wonderful pictures on Flipboard. Have a good night, everyone. Take care.